0: Startup Stories DSM features conversations with entrepreneurs in Greater Des Moines, Iowa who share their stories of what worked and what failed on their entrepreneurial journey. This podcast is produced by the Greater Des Moines Partnership. More tips and resources are available at dsmpartnership.com slash business resources. I'm your host, Mike Caldwell, Executive Director of Entrepreneurial Initiatives at The Partnership. First, Laprade, welcome to Startup Stories. How does a graduate of Yale Economics become a police officer the very next year? I would- So my interest in police work
1: actually started when I was a junior in college. I um, was 20 years old, and I was taking a class called the History and Philosophy of Police Practices. And it was very academic and theoretical. But as part of that class, you did um, a walking beat with some officers from the New Haven Police Department. And uh, I did that over a course of several nights, and I just really became fascinated by it. Um, Just a totally different world, really interesting to me. So... Um, you know, really nothing more to it than that.
0: So what kind of uh, beat did you walk? Uh,
1: you know, New Haven's an old uh, industrial city, East Coast, and, um, you know, really varied neighborhoods. So not very far from campus here in Congress Avenue. I walked in Congress Avenue. Um, I mean, I still remember with, you know, Officer Nacarado and, you know, Officer Shredders and uh, very, very, very different experience. And, um in a very different world from kind of what I was used to. Or
0: not the college campus world,
1: huh? For sure not, <laughs> no. yeah.
0: So you went on to get your MBA in information technology. What do you think of MBA programs? Are they, do you, are they worth it? What do you think? Uh, I, To provide a little bit of context,
1: I uh, graduated from my MBA program in 1999. So my information is certainly dated. For me, it was a really good experience and really perfect for my career. But my experience and background was different. I was a police officer uh, for the city of Berkeley in California, Um, and this was an interesting time. This was uh, from '94 to '99. It was when I was working as as a police officer and. that was a lot of technology change and a lot of uh, you know n-
0: new types of technology and businesses were... were, were um, yeah, it was CompuServe, it was AOL, it was E... Well, I don't know if eBay was there yet. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: No, for sure. And I had missed all of that. I was working in the civil service as a police officer. I was writing my reports longhand. I was doing right. traffic accident reports sure. uh, on a clipboard on the steering wheel while everybody else was emailing things around. So <laughs> when I started in 97, um, it was absolutely the right thing. And, and not only did I not know technology i didn't have any business background i hadn 't worked in a company in which you went to meetings or they even i didn 't even understand what different titles meant. Uh, sure. so for me, it was a crash course in all of those things all at once and um, it was you know it, it was excellent for me now fast forward um, in, you know many many years uh, i 'm not so sure it 's as relevant as it might have been back then um, also, for me, it was a little bit of a different context because um, the opportunity cost wasn't as significant for me. I, uh, When I went to Berkeley, I was paying $4,000 a semester. I was going to class during the day. I, I continued to work as a cop, working swing shifts and nights. Right. Um Now I'm just not. I'm just not sure. I'm a little more skeptical about it. For some people, it might be really a good call, but for others, maybe not. You
0: know, I look at the people like we were talking off before we started this about. You know, you've got an employee that's your CTO and just really enjoys it. I think that's a wonderful thing to do. But from a career management standpoint, I mean, so much of this can be learned online. The data is moving so fast. The information is moving so fast. The world's moving so fast. The stuff I learned five years ago is irrelevant now. And I've been out of school since '83. Yeah. Well, I, I. your MBA was in information technology. Was it a specialized MBA? Do you think, looking back now? You know, I I really didn't have a grand design
1: about what I was going to do um, with my, with my MBA. I just knew I was going to do something different. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, specialization—it's a two-year degree, so you're not going to go too deep anywhere. Right. And there's kind of a core grou- a group of classes that you take your first year. So uh, maybe it had a few more classes around information technology. Um, But, you know, I look back and kind of smile because this was the beginning of the Internet business model. So this was this is Bay Area, 97 to 99. um, And so much of what we were taught or what we're learning, people, it was changing so rapidly and it continues to change so many years later. So um, we had a class in Internet strategy, I think, that you would just laugh at. (laughs) Uh, And I'm not entirely sure, kind of to your original question, if you are interested in. Uh, SaaS-delivered software models and uh, how companies are valued around that, that's changing every six months now. So um, the best sources of information around how to run a SaaS company or um, SaaS sales strategy or single-instance multi-tenant architecture, it's probably not an MBA program with a professor who's been around for, uh, been in that same role for however long.
0: So I understand you have a background in photography, and you actually started a company that was involved in the photography industry. Tell me about Brightroom. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so that I don't
1: make the story too long. Uh, <laughs> it's okay. I, in um, in ninety nine, I was at a parade in San Francisco, and and actually I didn't have it at this point. I didn't know nothing about photography. Okay. Um, but in 1999, I was at a parade uh, in San Francisco, and my wife was actually, uh, she's an equine vet, and she was the the official parade vet for the Santa.com parade on uh, the Embarcadero in San Francisco, and I had my photo taken, again, 1999, yeah. uh, kind of crazy bubble, beginning of the bubble economy. Oh, yeah, I remember um, that, 99. <laughs> so I had my picture taken by somebody dressed as a jester on the side uh, of this parade, and the. Um, this woman handed me a card, and I had—I assumed it was going to be a cute photo. I had my eight-month-old on my shoulders, and she said, "Go to this website, and you can see a picture of yourself." And um, I went home and kind of checked back every—you know—every few days, and lo and behold, you know, later in the week there was a picture. And the whole point of it was to drive traffic to Waiter.com. She was from Waiter.com to drive traffic to a website because that's how companies got valued—was was unique visits, Good. right? Um, yeah. And you couldn't buy the photo, and but it, it was a cute photo. And <laughs> so I thought about it more and more, and I thought, huh, you know, photography. And this was a digital photography. This was the beginning of digital point-and-shoot cameras. Yeah. Um, and I thought about digital photography, and at that point I'd been a, a roadrunner. I had um, run in a bunch of races, never competitively, but just for fun. And I always got my photos delivered to me in the mail. So I got a little print on a little silver halide print, um, contact print on a typically glued or taped to a piece of paper then with a label on the outside it was addressed to me um, from a few of the races i'd run Mm -hmm. so i looked into that you know into that business and i found that in the current in that business model of very analog workflow oh yeah it's super labor intensive um it, only, only the best races in the United States could be could be uh, photographed uh, profitably. So, I thought to myself, well, what if you changed this model? What if you had a digital workflow? What if you delivered proofs to people online? Sure. Um, what if you and then kind of continued to develop it? What if you didn't just photograph a few races across the country, but if you photographed a lot of races in a lot of different geographic areas, you could build teams. You could reduce. Um, you could reduce the the costs of covering the race, um, and so essentially we uh, built a company behind that. So that was Brightroom. Um, we raised a little bit of money. We raised about eight hundred sixty thousand dollars, I remember, and but a lot of it was really bootstrapped. So from the very beginning, we were selling, photographing, selling, and reinvesting the money back into the business. And started in two thousand, and then I think by two thousand five, we were ten million in revenue. A million in profit. Um, we had a 10,000 square foot warehouse. where uh, we we're totally vertically integrated, so we had uh, you know, a forklift, and we were building plaques and frames, and we had two different photo printers. It, um, it was it was a crazy, crazy ride. Um, challenges to that business, though, was were that the market's just not the market's pretty finite. Yeah. Um, so you ran out, we ran out of stuff to photograph. I and mean, we were photographing every race that was worth photographing in the United States. And then also the barriers to entry started to disappear. Because at the beginning, we were shooting 35-millimeter film and digitizing it. Right. And we thought it was going to be great when it went, all went digital. But it turned out, uh, because we were reduce expenses, it turns out when it all went digital, it allowed everybody else to get into the Lowered the, the barriers. Busy, yeah. yeah. So yeah. Um, anyway, all and, ultimately I ended up selling that company, but
0: um, that was really my crash course in entrepreneurship. Sure, sure. sure. So. And that was something you started? Yes. Wow. Yeah. So how did you come to start Gain Compliance? There's a bit of a journey in between, but Yep. Uh, how did Gain Compliance come about? So I had,
1: um, so in between Brightroom and Gain, um, and Gain Compliance, I actually had two, two other um, kind of uh, ventures that I was part of. So um, got to know digital photography really really well sure um built up you know a domain knowledge around digital workflows and uh, operations around photography so i bought a business in des moines which is how i moved from the bay area to des moines um called josh photography and we did um and it was a it was a turnaround so it was a company that did uh, large group photography so um and graduations, uh, but we we did a, a tremendous amount of business around things like senior senior class photos, uh, okay. marching band contests. Oh, interesting! Oh my goodness! Uh, don't get me started. Um, music festivals. Uh, we shot about ten thousand school groups a year in forty three states. Oh my. God. Um, and i when I bought into that business, they were shooting medium and large format, so they were just a little behind the curve to digital adoption. Mm-hmm. I looked at that business, knew that I could run it better than it was being run. Um, I knew I had a really solid partner with the uh, the the guy who had who had owned it completely, and then I bought half of it from him mm-hmm. um, so I saw a good path to, to turn that business into a success so indeed came out here and um, Ran that for about five years, sold it in 2010, um, then worked for the new owners for a while and then looked up and thought, OK, now what do I do? Because sure. I'm in Des Moines, Iowa. Um, You're not in the Valley anymore. Nope. I, I have I have a skill set that's an inch deep and a mile wide. Yeah. Um, I can't walk into any of these large companies in downtown Des Moines and say I really want to work in. Finance or HR or marketing or operations, um, and credibly say that I could do anything besides work as an entry level, right. in an entry level position, because there were people who had specialized resumes. Sure. sure. So, fortunately, was introduced to, um, to Matt Razai uh, by a mutual friend of ours, um, and this was at, when Web Filings was just getting going up in, okay. in Ames and later became Workiva. Right. Um, so I think I, I that company was well on its way when I joined. Uh, so really fun to be part of that startup. So uh, I had done kind of two startups of my own, and now I was part of somebody else's. And the web filings were Kiva One experience was um, was fascinating to be a part of it because it grew so fast and grew to I be so big. I was going to say, that
0: was a big fast. I mean, that yeah. was a go big, go fast kind of deal. Oh, for sure. And, um, yeah, it, it's
1: kind of the stuff that you read about and um, in the success stories, right? So, you know, I think um, at the Prometheus Awards a few years ago, Dave Tucker talked about it and compared its success to other software companies. And I think it got to $100 million in revenue faster than oracle and microsoft had certainly a different business model SaaS allows a lot of things, but it tells you a little bit about how quick they got there yeah for sure Um, so i worked there for four years uh, and met my co-founders while i was there Um, and it grew to be pretty big so when i was when i left i think it was 1200 people Um, and ultimately uh, you know what i really enjoy doing is the much smaller stuff i like zero to 50 employees like that's that's my sweet spot um, and it, and I was also turned on. I think when I was at Workiva to uh, true SaaS delivered software, so single instance, multi
0: tenant, right. Correctly architected. Yeah. Um, you were talking about zero to fifty. I, I found out that I liked the fifty to two hundred level. Yeah. Uh, when we hit four thousand five hundred people, I was not having any fun anymore. It yeah. was just uh, not fun. Now there are challenges with each. Uh, stage of growth, but um, but you do find areas you like. Yeah, and I think you know I think about a lot of the startup people that grow something, get it pretty big, either exit it or they hire the CEO yeah. to run it. They kind of step aside. They almost always go back to that small size again. You can tell they they get in their comfort zone. If I want to run it, from a friend of mine that says I want to go buy it when it's got five people and sell it when it's five hundred, it's like. All right. And he's done it several times. He's good at it. I mean, it's what he, he, he says, that's what I'm good at. Yeah.
1: I, uh, makes sense. No, that's right. And I think, they're, yes, for sure, I, I truly believe different people have um, skill sets for different size companies.
0: Yeah, and loves of different sizes. Yeah. Some people like that big room. <laughs> I didn't <laughs> like it. So tell me about Gain Compliance.
1: Um, so Jason, Steve, and I left in uh, a little over two years ago now. So we're in our third year of operation um, and we had worked together really closely for four years. Um, so Steve and I, actually by physical proximity, um, if we had backed our chairs up at the same time in the same small office, we would have run into each other up yeah. in Ames. Um, and Jason was just outside the door from us. Um, so uh, we got to know each other really, really well. Um, and uh, I think that they share that kind of same entrepreneurial bent. The um, We looked at a lot of different Ideas in terms of where where we were going to start a company. Uh, We looked at uh, audits around banks, so Bank Secrecy Act, anti money laundering. We looked at vendor risk uh, assessments. Um, Some pretty technical, um, pretty deep in the weeds. Software challenges. Um, Ended up, and those by the way are great ideas for somebody else. Those still need to be solved. we ended up in insurance, and the reason we ended in insurance um, was because the the challenge is real. Uh, yeah. The compliance challenges of reporting are, are, are difficult, um, but really it's a much— You much, are so understating that.
0: It's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like saying flying the guys to the moon in 1968 was a hard problem. Yeah,
1: yeah I know. <laughs> when you talk to people in insurance, they'll, they'll nod their head. They, that's yeah. for sure. Um, the— the the most attractive reason or the reason that insurance was most attractive to us was it's just proximity. Des Moines is an insurance town. And we knew that we had a lot of hard work ahead of us to learn uh, to get domain knowledge and to learn about the business challenges.
0: There's a word right there, those two words right there that I I wish I could get more people to understand is domain knowledge. Because it's one thing to say I I understand the problem. It's another thing to have 20 customers say yes, you understand the problem. And, And Getting that leap from I understand it to which you probably don't right. Right. <laughs> the, the, the person you to where ten or twenty customers are going yeah this is yep. making sense that is the hardest with on the product side is getting to that point where you really are seen as the authority yep. not just somebody's trying to fix a problem I absolutely agree I think that is a hundred
1: percent of um, of what we bring to the table uh, you know our kind of unfair advantage is that. We like these really hard puzzles, and I work with two of the best people, or my two co-founders are two of the best people, in terms of understanding hard problems and um, you know things like data models around financial reporting, uh, validations and cross-checks, and statutory accounting. There's a whole other part of accounting that's not gap reporting, right? right. And you have to become an expert in this enough to build a product.
0: Well, I think about things like reporting and I love business models that take on something hard like EU regulatory, right? Pick your pick your space because no one company, even the biggest really can't become a domain expert in right. it. It's just they're doing it four times a year or 12 times a yeah. year or whatever. And it's a cost factor of the business, not part of what makes the business great. Right. So they're never going to put the time and effort into it, nor should they. Right. And so to me, it's one of those places where you truly can build a company where you, you can know more than your biggest customer quite easily. Oh, For, for sure. That's when you deliver value. No, I, I agree with that. Um, the
1: uh, Absolutely. The, the other part of it is that uh, it's an insiders versus outsiders question to me. So if you are a person who lived in stat reporting, and this is kind of who we compete against. Mm-hmm. So some of the solutions that, were, uh, that are out there today are point solutions because somebody was sitting in a company and said, oh my goodness, this is really hard what we're trying to do. What, at, what these requirements are, are, um, are demanding of us is, I, I, I have an idea and I'm going to build some software around this. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have that insight. So they, they start with the domain knowledge, but they don't have the product knowledge or the, the ability to build something really special. Um, and a lot of people who are really talented developers don't have the patience to get the domain knowledge. So if you can, if you can reconcile those two... It defines the value of the product marketer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and really, you know, product management is really that first part, which is to say, here's where we're going to start. Um, this is for insurance. It was a greenfield for us, so yeah. we knew insurance reporting was interesting to us. But where do you start in insurance reporting? Because there are so many opportunities, um, and so where do you start? And then what's the sequence of what you're of what you're building and how you're going to build it? And then the ability to see around the corners of say, okay, but if we build it this way, we're going to be limited six months a year down the road. Yep. Um, Or this is 90% of the data we need for step two. Exactly. So, um, you know, our vision is to leverage shared data across reports. So uh, with GAIN compliance, we look at the totality of the reporting challenges. Um, And uh, so for us, it's not just statutory financial reporting. It's also, you know, market conduct annual statement or uh, rating agency reports um, or premium tax all of those reports that I named all have a fundamental, um, or one of the fundamental values that they report is premiums written. So um, insurance companies today are doing those reports. Different teams are doing them. They're collecting the data from from myriad systems at different times of the year. And usually a bunch of spreadsheets. And a lot, a lot of Excel flying back and forth, for sure. Um, and we look at it from the standpoint of, all right, We're going to build a really good solution that's going to be world beating in each of these different use cases. And then when you start to realize how there's a network effect of this data, right. it's that makes it really, really and interesting. And the network
0: effect you described to me once is, is the removal of the errors. When the insurance commissioner says you said it was this number on this report, but on this report you gave me a different number, yeah. I guess we better come in and do an audit and figure out what you're really doing. Yeah, is yeah, that fair? Uh,
1: that's, that's absolutely a really good synopsis of it. Um, it's even worse than that, though. Uh, we, we're working with one report right now where it's the statutory financial uh, report and the data is not even consistent within the report, because the way that the regulations are written, you have to do a printed report that gets filed yep. and so people are drafting that in in Microsoft Word, and then they're hand entering that data into filing software, which is um, a little bit uh long in the tooth, so the filing software that they're using is is not uh, it's not innovative it 's not modern um and they, by virtue of having this manual process of taking data that they've typed into a Microsoft Word document and then retyping it into um, this somewhat dated uh, interface, they make mistakes. Sure. And, and that, mis- that error rate is actually over about half. So, about half of the documents we've seen, we've seen hundreds of documents at this point, about half of the time, the CEO, the CFO, the officers of the company are signing off on the printed document. And the data that is being um, analyzed by the insurance regulators is the electronically filed data. Right. So, it, a- absolutely, you
0: know, this is this is. Um, this is the kind of stuff we get excited about. <laughs> well, get, just to summarize, for those who don't understand it, you've got 50 states of regulation. So yeah. insurance is regulated at a state level. Yeah. And then you have multiple types of insurance. Yeah. So for any given state, you may have multiple regulatory filings for each type of insurance. Yeah. So if you're somebody big, I don't know, principal that's selling in all 50 states and maybe four or five different lines, and then you're doing after to report monthly, quarterly, well, mostly quarterly, yeah. the number of reports, you, it gets into the thousands. It does. Literally, yeah. I, I have a 1,000 reports to do. I have 3, Reports to do on this date. You said March 1, the annual reports. And that is a daunting task to do right. Yeah,
1: and some of those reports are one page, they're just a form to fill out, and others are 100 pages. So, and some of them are heavily scrutinized, and some of them are ignored. are ignored. So
0: it, it, there's a... And, and, and you don't know which is which all the time. <laughs>
1: people are trying to get it right. That's the challenge. They do.
0: Uh, Most companies, this is the thing, that you know the big bad company thing really doesn't exist that often. Most of us just want to do it right, yeah. especially regulatory, because doing it wrong, anybody that's done it wrong once by accident knows the nightmare. Right. It, it, going through the nightmare of an audit is just... Right, right. So you said you're in your third year. Where's the company at? I mean, give me an idea of if, what you can share. Obviously, don't share yep. anything you don't want to share. But where where are you guys at now? Um, so
1: we launched our first product at the beginning of this year, um, and we'll uh, be launching our second product at the beginning of 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, you know, in terms of validation, we uh, we worked very, very closely with. Pilot customers, so we got a lot of feedback. It was a very collaborative process for us to build the first product. Mm -hmm. And as the the, as that feedback, you know, got better and better, you know, then we realized, all right, it's time to see if this thing will, you know, see if this thing has legs. Let's let's go try to sell it.
0: The reality test,
1: yeah, uh, to people who don't know us, because it's it's a little bit Stockholm syndrome ish. Um, You could work with pilot customers who they were part of the process. Yeah, they're vested. yeah, they are invested. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely invested in the outcome. Um, and so, you know, that's a big moment when you start to pick up the phone and that's what I do. Right. So as the CEO of a startup, guess what? You're, you're the sales guy. You're the salesperson. Um, so I started with, uh, with sales at the beginning of this year um, and have hired a few people as, as we've proven out that this, that the, 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 there's a very receptive audience to it. And we we've been growing a lot uh, it's been surprising uh, even you know even when you have the most optimistic forecast of, of where you're gonna be uh, we've been growing really really nicely so Well congratulations
0: on that thank you great yeah. so you you mentioned you know CEO sell CEOs do a lot of things in yeah. startups let's talk a little bit about how do you view the role of the CEO um, of a startup that went from zero to I think you said you have fourteen people yep yeah, so we've uh,
1: fourteen people the uh, so the most important role for the first uh, for the first year and maybe beyond uh, for sure, what Jason and Steve do, uh, which um, that's decide what we're going to build and then actually build it. Yeah. Um, and um, for me, I was the utility player that supported that effort. So I used to joke that kind of my role for the first six nine months was, you know, make sure that we had an office to be, uh, you know, that that had electricity and an internet connection. Um, Help them out wherever we could. Get them a sandwich. You know, just no,
0: no kidding. uh, Go get coffee. That's support role, yeah,
1: and and also stay out of the way uh, because they're way more talented at at that than I am. Um, And then as it progresses, uh, you take on it's the catch-all role. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, for our first nine employees, I think other than Jason, Stephen, me, every one of them was a developer. And, uh, and I'm the only I was of those nine original, uh, the first nine people in the office, I was the only one who, who actually couldn't write any code. Um, uh, and so I'm the non-technical person. Um, but essentially, you're just kind of in, a, in that very much a support role. Um, as you get closer to product launch, uh, you know, there's definitely important work to be done around financing. So, you know, I led the financing efforts. um you're a lot of legal work or not a lot but important legal work to make sure that you're structured correctly that all of those i's are dotted and t's are crossed yeah because that's another place if you get it wrong it'll kill you yep for sure um and then as you do get into the sales part of it um you're actually selling Backing up for a moment i actually did a lot of document review so Mm -hmm. um and that I, i don't know if that sounds as bad as it as it was by document review, I was Steve would task me from time to time and say, "I want you to compare these two documents and make sure that every pixel looks like it's supposed yeah. to look." Yeah. Um, so a lot of very rote, you know, analysis to make sure that our PDFs were rendering correctly, that they matched the NAIC illustrations. Um, so whatever needs, whatever needs
0: critical need to, but boring.
1: Yeah. If you have if you have nine uh, people on your team and there's one guy who can't write code and can't really help with the product development guess who gets to review the documents, yep. right? So, uh, anyway, uh, now I actually lead the sales. So I have two people, um, who work on my team and, uh, you know, we're doing phone demos and we're doing sales. Um, and I'm, you know, getting contracts signed. I'm doing accounts payable, accounts receivable. I say, do you do your own books? I
0: do own my own books. Yeah. Good for you. Yeah. Yeah. I wish more startups did their own books. Yeah. Uh, so you've raised capital multiple times. Um, what advice do you have for entrepreneurs that relates to managing the raise and the cap table? Because yeah. you've been through this more than most have. Yeah. So
1: I've done, uh, so I've, the way I kind of term it is I've signed my own paychecks at, at three different companies. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, in two of those companies, we raised outside capital, so this one and my first one. And it's always an experience, and it's a learning experience as you go through it. The I look at a lot of examples in, um, in and around town and the number one thing I would tell you is if you truly believe in what you're doing and and you're on to something, you'll get funded. Um, I mean, I look around town and I see people who battled it for a really long time and they, you know, and they had challenges around raising money and ultimately they were successful. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is it is not an impossible task to raise money. Um, The most important piece of advice that I would give anybody is um, you have to be, you have to have a lot of candor in when you talk to your potential investors and you have to find a good fit. So, um, you know, I could actually point back to the WorkEva web filings experience. That's a company that, Grew very quickly to 100 million, and then to 200 million in revenue, and has an over a billion dollar valuation. And they followed their own playbook about which investors they worked with. They sure. never raised venture capital,
0: right.
1: um, and so uh, you can't be too eager just to
0: take somebody's check. You have to be very got to be the right money. It does and that, that's different by company. Yeah, yeah for sure, for it, sure, it really is because it. You know the the exit timing. If there yeah. if there's going to be an exit, usually there's some exit, but yeah. or some plan beyond. We're going to grow a great company, yeah. at least for the outside investors, right? But getting the right money and strategic money in a lot of cases, money that knows the industry, right. is a is a huge thing. Yeah. Um, what what do you think that you've been in Des Moines quite a while, actually? Yeah. What do you think of the Des Moines startup ecosystem? What do you think it needs to do to grow and mature? Um. It's a great question I don't know necessarily that there's anything
1: broken about it uh, every obviously everything could you know everybody will who's gone through the process will tell you or oh, here's what didn't go well for me and here's what could be better but I think those complaints are universal it doesn't make a difference where you are. I think there's a lot going right in the Des Moines ecosystem um, the one my my observation to it is that um, emulating somebody else's Path to success or somebody else's model might work, but it's not really the right thing to do. Right. So, even just going back to that example I gave with uh, with Workiva, they were very, very successful in a um, in a model that you don't see in Silicon Valley. They only raised, they never raised institutional venture capital. Right. Um,
0: they're very atypical.
1: Yeah, it, and they they did raise a bunch of money, um, but they're. There is no need for a company in Des Moines to apologize for being from the Midwest, and I think that's actually
0: coming out. I think there's I think just think a, we're finally starting to get there. Yeah. They stopped apologizing. Yeah. They need to beat their own drum a little more.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, this is a, there's a legitimate a legitimate startup environment. And by the way, it doesn't make a difference if you're from um, a startup environment that has launched a lot of successful startups or you're the only one. Right. If you've got game, then you can be successful because you know what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, but trying to emulate... Um, other areas of the country is is not where we're going to be so that's not where i personally think that we're going to be successful so with gain compliance um you know we see a huge opportunity for our company to grow but i don't see us following the path of a conventional silicon valley venture capital uh you know funded company and it's um and i go to a lot of insure tech events in which uh, there's a lot of money in insure tech right now, and oh, so there, yes. there are a lot of companies that would be interested in writing big checks. If I could tell a slightly different story, mm-hmm. um, and I'm not interested in telling a story because I, that's not what, that's not what we're doing. That's, that's it's not our plan. Exactly yeah. right. Yeah. Um, so. I guess that's a, a personal a- answer to what what could Des Moines be doing better. I, I think there's a lot of really good startups actually right now in the in the
0: in the metro. Um, there are. I mean, more every day. It's yeah. interesting to see. And actually, we recently saw an tech startup move to Des Moines. Oh yeah, from from outside, which yeah. I thought was kind of an interesting box to check. It,
1: you, I lived in the Bay Area. We moved um, the day before my oldest son um, went to kindergarten. So this was 2004, and we swore it was only going to be five years, and, you know, I was going to buy this company. We're going to turn it around. We're going to sell it. We're going to move on. This has turned out to be a great environment for me to raise my family, uh, to, you know, to be engaged in a- another startup, so somebody else's startup that I worked for for four years, yeah. um, to do my own startup. The, at some point, living in Silicon Valley is
0: just way too much overhead, period. Uh, I I had an office in the Valley in the nineties. Yeah. was out there all the time. And I just, boy, it's, that's a hard life. I,
1: um, yeah. I mean, and so there's just a tremendous amount to commend, uh, places other than Boston, New York, and in San Francisco in the Valley, uh, as places to start up. Yeah. Um, it's, if you have the mentality of the mentality. So if you're interested in doing a startup, you, you can do it anywhere. I mean, if you look at Great Plains, they're from North Dakota.
0: No kidding. Uh, Epic's up in Wisconsin. Yeah, right? Epic's, Epic's coming. So, Multi-billion-dollar yeah. company yeah. in Wisconsin. So. so, so before we close off, I, I understand that you took a group of kids on Rag Bride. Yeah. Was that this year? Uh, you know,
1: it's actually it's my ninth year of doing it. So uh, I I love Iowa, and I've really fallen in love with Iowa and. Uh, since I've been here, and one of the really eye-opening experiences was um, I did a day of Rag Bright ten years ago with oh, my yeah. with my son, who's now a sophomore in college when he was a little kid. Yeah, and I just thought this was the greatest thing in the world. All you know, ten to fifteen thousand people, you know, biking from town to town and, through cornfields, <laughs> through cornfields, yeah, and a little small town highway. I mean, it is I, to my mind, it is, it is I, I always say it's my favorite week of the year. So um, I've done. Uh, we did it nine years in a row. Uh, so this was my ninth year. Uh, I've done it with my kids as they got a little bit older. Um, mm-hmm. So my youngest is now 12, and this was my third year riding the whole thing with her. Okay. Um, and my nephew came out from Virginia this year. I just, there is, uh, I, it's, it's hard for me to, um, to articulate how much I love rugby. It's just the neatest thing in the world. Well, and it it's
0: obvious a lot of people do. I mean, look at the number of people that come yeah. in. Yeah. Around the world. Right, bring bikes in for it. It, it reminds it, me of Sturgis and the Harley riders, right? It, it, it is. So, uh,
1: it's a bucket list item for if yeah. you're into cycling. Uh, and if I mention bride to people, they'll say that's that is one thing I need to do at some point. Yeah. So, I have brought in. Um, so the guy who actually has written nine of these with me is my former police sergeant. So, um, and an investor in my company, by the way. Uh, so you know he came he got me into biking when I was out in California uh how decades ago and so he comes in every year and then he started to bring in people so he brings in his sister and brother-in-law and his nieces they they came in uh the past few years he brought in a friend of his from Belgium I brought in my wife's uncle and anyway my sister came out it's it's just a wonderful, wonderful week. Uh, it really—it is a different kind of week. Yeah, know, oh, for sure, it it's crazy. It's yeah. not the normal. <laughs> it's, it's not normal. If that's your kind of fun, this absolutely. is this is this is a perfect uh, way to way to do it. So,
0: well, Bert, thanks for being on Startup Stories.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it.
0: Thanks for listening to Startup Stories DSM podcast. Inspired by this startup story, visit dsmpartnership.com slash business resources to find upcoming events, videos, and other free resources dedicated to helping startups and entrepreneurs accelerate success in DSM USA. That's dsmpartnership.com slash business resources. Thanks for listening.